This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. And I'm Jess Ghanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we've got an incredible show today. Uh, there's a lot of things to go over. And the things that we can't really talk about is today being the one-year anniversary of the devastation of the blast that occurred in, in Lebanon. We had a great uh, interview a week or so ago with Ranya Masri about that. But today or yesterday was the one-year anniversary. And, you know, our hearts go out to everybody in Lebanon uh, right now. The situation is very dire. We're not going to have time to talk about the Delta variant and the out-of-control COVID situation that's happening not just here in the United States, but worldwide. It's It's really a horrible situation, which, you know, maybe next time we'll have time to talk about. But today's show... Actually, we got a lot of exciting things to go over. Um, we're going to be talking about the so-called Israeli Supreme Court and their decision with Sheikh Jarrah. We're going to be talking about how a nonprofit in Canada seems to be supporting the Israeli military. I wonder what that's about. Then the, and, and giving tax deductions, by the way. Right. That's the interesting thing. We're going to be talking about our favorite uh, Islamophobe, Laura Loomer, who was ordered to pay the legal fees in a crazy lawsuit to CARE, which is great. But really, the the heart of our show today is that you had a really great uh, interview with Hisham bin Hamsa about what's happening in Tunisia, and uh, it's really eye-opening. That's correct, Jess, and this is what we promised last show. Right. We started to talk about Tunisia, and we promised to say, we said that we will bring someone who knows more than you and me about <laughs> Tunisia and someone who is in Tunisia, not sitting in Washington, D.C., exactly. in a think tank, in exactly. a so-called think tank. So let's uh, watch and listen uh, to Hisham bin Khamsa. In the 10 years since its popular uprising set off the Arab Spring, Tunisia has often been praised as the one success story to emerge from the era of turbulence. Now, as Tunisians grapple with the latest upheaval, which began with the President Kais Saeed, who dismissed the Prime Minister and suspended Parliament, many seem divided on whether to condemn his actions or embrace them. Joining us from Tunis to discuss this and more, Hisham bin Khamsa, a cultural activist. Uh, Hisham also, for many years, uh, directed film festivals in Tunisia. Welcome to Arab Talk, Hisham. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Jamal, and uh, a big hello to all the friends in uh, San Francisco area and beyond, because I know that you li they listen to you beyond San Francisco. So there are a lot of conflicting uh, reports about what's going on in Tunisia. Frankly, people who, who have never been to Tunisia, don't know anything about Tunisian politics, are weighing in. I want to hear it from you. You are in the capital uh, in Tunis. Walk us through uh, about what happened. Well, uh, basically, uh, there has been uh, some kind of strange situation for the last 10 years. Uh, you know that we were the ones who uh, started this uh, Arab Spring story. And uh, we are the last ones to keep on hoping for democracy uh, when we see the, all the upheaval in the region. Uh, but also what happened is that uh, democracy did not, unfortunately, bring well-being. 
to the people, especially to the young people. And uh, 10 years later, uh, the situation, the economic situation, doubled with the pandemic situation, is absolutely disastrous. And uh, the government and the parliament have a very, very big responsibility in this because of their mismanagement. When we say government and uh, parliament, uh, we, first of all, the Tunisians will think of the leading party, uh, leading because it has the biggest chunk uh, in the parliament, though it's not, um, uh, it doesn't have the majority uh, of the people. And it's the Anahda Islamist Party. Uh, they have been in every single government since 2012. They won two elections in a row. I mean, not in a row. They won one election, they lost the second, and then they came back with a third election. But they never took responsibility of uh, taking the power. They always tried to uh, deflect uh, when there were problems, saying, oh, we were not uh, in power for only, we were in the power for only two years. Uh, but they have been in every single, uh, literally single government since 2000, and, at least since 2012. So there is a big, I mean, a huge feeling of, okay, we got it. No more of this, no changes. And the population is really, really fed up. So you have to understand that the decision taken by Kais Saeed, the president, on the 25th of, of July, which is ironically Republic Day in Tunisia, uh, came after months of uh, people going out in the street, mainly young people, uh, fighting, uh, getting into confrontation with the police, picketing the parliament and asking for a, uh, for a change, at least of the situation and the political fuzziness that we're seeing. If you add to that uh, a very, very bad uh, management of the pandemic, of COVID crisis, in last uh, May or April, Tunisia was proud to say that we were one of the countries that were that managed the best the uh, the pandemic, and we had something like 58 or 59 dead. That was uh, in May or June 2020. Yesterday, we passed the bar of 20,000 people dead, and the government has absolutely. The, the, the outgoing government. Which is just, and, I just want to remind our uh, audience, uh, the population of Tunisia is how, mu how many? It's, uh, it's 12 million if you count the uh, diaspora, but it's 11 million in Tunisia. So it's a lot. That's what I'm trying to say, that, that, that is for a, huge, a small country, not, that's a huge fatality not only number. Is, not only is it huge, but uh, now if you look at the numbers and the, uh, uh, the proportions to the, to the population, uh, we are the number one uh, hotspot in Africa. And Africa, you have to understand, has a country called South Africa. In an article you have written uh, that the Tunisian constitution is amateurish. This is how you describe it. Uh, confused, inapplicable, and above all, ignored and often abused by the representatives of the people who ultimately only represent themselves as well as their big donors. And then you ask a question, should we expect the fatality because it is the supreme law of the land pending on the next elections? Please explain what, what do you mean by this? You see, uh, if you look at the situation in Tunisia uh, from the Tunisian point of view, and also uh, if you look at the situation in Tunisia and the reactions from abroad, uh, if you stick to the legalistic point, which is, okay, there is a constitution and anybody who doesn't follow the constitution is outlawed. So it's, uh, that's why so many people were 
so fast that screaming, uh, there was a coup in Tunisia. And it even went even further because some media, uh, without even coming uh, here on the ground or, or, or double checking, uh, especially after pundits uh, started talking about the same talking points that we hear for the last 10 years all over the Arab world. You would, uh, so I saw the New York Times talking about chaos, for instance, and upheaval. Uh, the thing is this. Okay, there is a constitution, but the constitution was uh, written in 2014. Uh, yeah, in 2014, uh, it took three years to write it after the uh, constituent assembly agreed on doing it in one year only. And every time they were writing this, it was a power play between different political parties trying to position themselves through that constitution. The constitution also said that within a year after the, the constitution is uh, validated, we would have a constitutional uh, court. That was 2014. We were supposed to have a, a constitutional court in 2015. We are now in 2021 and we still don't have a constitutional court. So we ha don't have a Supreme Court to say whether it was a coup or not. Besides, if you the feeling on the ground here from the Tunisians is that, okay, how good is a constitution if it's not working for the people? Uh, how good is a constitution if it's not looking for the interests uh, of the people? And uh, if it is a reason for three different powers, mainly the president of the republic, the head of government, which is the, like the prime minister, but it, he has the, the um, title of head of government and the, the parliament, especially the, the president of the parliament, who is the head of the Islamist uh, party, Al-Nahda. And these guys, for the last at least six months, have been fighting like bar fighting. And people really had it. Now what uh, the media, the main media, like the New York Times or whatever other media uh, reported on the so-called coup in Tunisia, they didn't say that the decision of the president came on the 25th of July in the evening, after a full day of uh, just movements from young people in the streets, uh, the people just uh, demonstrating uh, violence, not really violence, but uh, confrontation with the police. And the last six months in particular have been really going back on, uh, on human rights from the government that is led by another. Uh, especially uh, we had uh, the, the police state somehow is back not as bad as during the dictatorship because uh, people don't take things for granted anymore and they just go in and bump into them, and especially the young people, they have nothing to lose. And more than anything, if we had one gain from the revolution in the last 10 years, it's freedom of expression and uh, people are not gonna give that up. So there have been a lot of, uh, besides the COVID, besides the uh, economic situation, there have been a lot of confrontation with the police state led by uh, uh, the head of government, Mishishi, who was supposed to be a, um, the, the ousted uh, head of government, who was supposed to be an independent, but who obviously could not move, make a single move without having uh, clearance from the Anahada. And not only Anahada, because uh, Anahada is in power with two other uh, parties that are getting the majority in the parliament, which is like 109. Uh, one of them is a secular uh, party, and the other one is a... Salafi body, something reminiscent of alt-right. Uh, imagine, a, if, you, if you will, for the Americans, if you had a coalition 
of uh, uh, the alt-right with uh, some parts of the moderate Republican uh, uh, Party and the uh, religious right. Uh, that is what the situation is. And more than anything else, uh, with the last uh, 10 years, remember that has, there has been political assassinations in Tunis. Uh, there was a total takeover of the judiciary from the Nahda party. And uh, people had it. And uh, again, I'm telling you, uh, a lot of people are talking about the 25th in the evening when uh, President Kais Saied decided to follow his uh, reading of the constitution because he is a, you have to understand that he's a constitutional law um, scholar. Mm -hmm. And uh, he went on his own reading. And uh, the problem is that there is no uh, Supreme Court, no constitutional uh, court to say whether his reading is right or not. So somehow he gave himself and he is the, uh, the, uh, the ultimate law. It might sound uh, crazy, but we have no alternative into reading about this. Everything else is conjecture. So, uh, I mean, you're correct to say... Uh what the New York Times uh, uh, has been writing and other journalists, but there is uh, this whole description describing what's going on as a coup, you know, and then others are trying to uh, make a comparison between what's going on in, in Tunisia and with the Sisi, like trying to describe that Kai Saeed is another Sisi. Of course, uh, Sisi, we're referencing the Egyptian president and how he came to power, uh, you know. I mean, uh, you, you're again, you, I've read you said uh, you don't think that Kai Saeed wants or is able to be a Tunisian Sisi, right? So, uh, but many Tunisians are willing to take the risk anyway. So even if he is, many Tunisians are willing to take the risk. How so? Look, uh, for Americans, and I am Tunisian-American, uh, it's like, uh, let's just go back a few months back in the U.S. if you want to understand the situation. Uh, we were seeing uh, Donald Trump and his uh, followers uh, fomenting a coup, uh, taking the country into, I mean, uh, when Donald Trump left office, there were 400,000 uh, people dead. And I'm pretty sure a lot of, uh, of Democrats, of people who love democracy in the U.S., including uh, Congress people like uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, uh, whom I absolutely uh, admire, uh, jumping into uh, the bandwagon of saying Tunisia, uh, there is a change, a coup in Tunisia. But I'm pretty sure that when uh, in the US, it was totally unhinged. Uh, a lot of people were saying, is there a possibility to get rid of some this catastrophe before it becomes a drama? And that is the feeling that we have here in Tunisia. Of course, we don't have a, a Supreme Court, even though we've seen what happened with the Supreme Court in the US, but there are institutions. Remember, Tunisia, uh, the democracy has been 10 years old and Americans are so proud of their over 200 plus uh, democracy and the institutions that are there. The question is that I ask, and a lot of people around me ask, is when it's ab about the, the life of people, when it's about uh, building a system, what is more important, sticking to a, a, a law that you can discuss or sticking to the general principles of well-being, of uh, seeing, you're sitting there, you have a train coming with, uh, against you, 
and uh, you say, oh no, I cannot move because the, red, uh, the, the light is red. And the law says that the light is red, I'm stuck between two, uh, two racks, but the law says that I, I cannot move because, uh, so what is it? Is it the law or survival? That is the question that a lot of Tunisians are asking today. And uh, again, I'm not really worried uh, because of the news cycle, it will, people will kind of lose. And after, even after the pundits in Washington DC or the newspapers will lose interest in what Tunisia is ha happening 48 or 72 hours or a week or a month, we are here on the ground building this country. There is no so, other way. Yeah, you're absolutely correct on this one. And of course, talking about democracy, uh, in a recent interview, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that he had spoken with the Tunisian president and, and I'm quoting from him, urged him to make sure that Tunisia returns to the, to the democratic path as quickly as possible. I mean, do you think that the United States should be the country lecturing Tunisia on democracy? Look, uh, I have difficulty of seeing any country uh, lecturing any other country. Now, when it comes to the United States, let's face it, it's the sole superpower. Uh, we understand that, uh, except that the timing maybe is not the best. Uh, I wish uh, the uh, Secretary of State a lot of uh, luck, and I have absolutely no doubt about his uh, good feelings uh, about Tunisia. Uh, beyond the good feelings, Tunisia is very important to the United States security. Remember that we are in the heart we are the little island, a stable island in a, in a region that is absolutely uh, going uh, down the drain, unfortunately. Uh, when you look at what's happening in Libya, when you look at, uh, remember, uh, we are uh, right across from Europe. So the Europeans are really worried that they will have waves of uh, illegal migrants coming. Uh, we are in the south, you have uh, Acme. And uh, we are a very uh, important uh, piece in the security uh, uh, plans and the security apparatus of the United States in the region. Uh, now, I wish as a Tunisian, as also somebody who is back and forth between the United States and, and Tunisia, I wish uh, there would be some new creative way of looking at what, at what democracy is in this country. And maybe I wish also that the establishment, the American establishment, the foreign uh, uh, affairs community, understand that what will build a strong democracy is values. Uh, we've seen what happened when America, uh, under totally simplistic ways of thinking that, okay, uh, you couple the words uh, Islam and democracy, and that should work. No, it doesn't work. That's a gimmick, okay? Democracy is democracy, whether you're a Muslim, a Jew, a Christian, or an atheist. Coupling these things is a gimmick, and it's not the best way to build strongly institutions. Uh, now, what happened is that we know also all the game that is played in, in, uh, in think, tank, think tanks. I mean, for God's sake, last week, there was a lady, of, an honorable uh, lady who is part of the Carnegie Endowment uh, for Peace, I believe. She called for sanctions against Tunisia withholding the COVID vaccine. So we go back to democracy. I mean, who on earth would even think of, uh, of saying something like that? Uh, thank God, thank God, the day after, and I, I take it as a, uh, as a proof that the US government is not letting Tunisia down. I mean, I believe like a couple of days later, uh, we received a, uh, an, a, a cargo of, I believe, 
millions. I think it's three million doses of COVID uh, vaccine coming from the United States government. And and again, uh, for God's sake, let the people who are on the ground, who are true Democrats, who believe, you know, I. Uh, We've known each other for a while, uh, Jamal, you and I, uh, privately. And uh, my, I have two boys who are 21 and, and 23 who, who live in the U.S., who are going to college in the U.S. And my thing is that when they come back to Tunis on vacation, I, have, I see no reason why they should be behaving differently from when they are in the U.S. Uh, because the rules should be the same. Their dignity should be the same. And uh, that's what we're striving for in this country. And we just... Puzzled. I mean, I'm not surprised that uh, somebody like Senator, uh, what's his name, from uh, North, uh, Graham from uh, South Carolina is jumping, saying we should send troops on the ground. I mean, we've seen what happened when you send troops on the ground. Well, we know, we know with, uh, that's, what, that's why I wanted to talk to you about uh, foreign interference and how much, uh, how much do you, the, 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 today's politics, how much are they influenced by foreign uh, interference? Do you think... Oh. You have it's a lot obvious. of that. Listen, it's obvious. It's obvious. We've seen it in the last at least six, seven, if not 10 years. The positioning of different uh, powers, regional powers, uh, the Turks and the Qataris behind the Islamists, uh, others, the Emiratis trying to get there, though they do it uh, in a less uh, obvious way. And they're not uh, really uh, the people who are who are listening to the Emirati, for instance, are not as uh, Carpet-like than the another with the the the, the, the Turks and uh, with Erdogan and and with Qatar simply because they are you have to understand the, the, the importance of being parts of the Muslim Brotherhood and Nahda and Ranushi are parts of the uh, Muslim neighborhood uh, the Muslim Brotherhood no matter what they say but the point is this there is a so a possibility there is a huge possibility for all the people who want to experiment quote unquote in uh, in democracy building. There is a huge possibility here to see not an experiment, but a true custom-made democratic experience set up that could be a, uh, an example to follow. And uh, it, within 10 years, with all the interference uh, from regional powers, from superpowers, uh, it, it, remember, the, may I remind everybody that a uh, few years ago, Tunisia, uh, was the number one exporter of terrorists into Syria and Iraq? Uh, <laughs> that's crazy, isn't it? And at the same time, it, it was, and and that's why I wanted to talk to you about, you know, uh, what are the changes now on the ground? I mean, you and I, when when we when we first met, I was there during the revolution. I was there during uh, when people demonstrated against Ganushi uh, later on, and during the elections when they when the Nahda came into into power. But people were still very hopeful. Uh, Tunis was uh, very safe for everyone. Uh, the people were going out, you know, despite the hardship, uh, eating, uh, going to restaurants, uh, staying late at night. Did this change? No, actually, that's funny because, uh, as I told you, I, I, I was reading a couple of newspapers of the last couple of days. Uh, talking about turmoil and chaos, etc. And before uh, I was rushing back to, for this interview with you, uh, and I live on the seaside, uh, on a resort, uh, uh, on a seaside resort. And uh, today is Monday. Uh, it's not even Sunday. 
La Marsa? And, uh, the beach was, uh, yeah, actually, I moved a little bit out away from La Marsa. I'm in La Goulette, but it's the same. I mean, like five minutes mm-hmm. away from La Marsa. And, uh, and the beach was full. It was crazy. Uh, families, uh, food. I was worried not because of the uh, of the chaos uh, of the military or the coup chaos. I was worried about the COVID chaos that might come from that <laughs> more than anything else. And uh, and we were talking later uh, earlier. You're asking me what is the situation today. Let me t- give you just one example of how strong civil society is in this country. How strong the youth of this country are are the best uh, are the best vaccine against returning to the. Uh, uh, to a dictatorship, no matter what, uh, how much they would cry, some people would cry wolf. Uh, when I was talking about exporting uh, terrorists, young terrorists to the uh, to Syria and Iraq, and and there are today clear clues and clear um, proof that uh, offshoots of a Nahda, not even if it's not a Nahda directly, were sending these people to Turkey and then from there to uh, Libya and Iraq. At the same time. We have a film industry that is absolutely striving, winning, uh, uh, winning uh, prizes and awards left and right. The, the latest one being going to the Oscar uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, three days ago, we have a young uh, man, 18 years old, who for his first uh, time uh, in international competition went to the Tokyo Olympics and he won the 400 meter uh, gold. Uh, it's the, the 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 country is striving with music and culture uh, and uh, and co- counterculture going on uh, and uh, and just uh, people are grabbing life left and right and uh, guess what in when we met last time in 2012 2013 more and more people more and more young women were wearing the veil on their heads because we were in a juncture where it was. Whoever, whoever was not with Nahda was against Islam. That was their uh, rhetoric. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to just go. And uh, today, well, my friend, in the cities, you have at least as many women wearing a veil as none. A uh, lot of women took off the veil, but that is not doesn't mean anything. But I'll tell you something. When you go, when you go to demonstrations. Against the government, against the Nahda, you have as many women wearing the veil that women who are not wearing the veil. So you have a feeling that the veil today, contrary to 2012 and 13, is a personal choice. And it is not, it has nothing to do with looking for democracy. And uh, people, it's a choice of life, a choice of faith, but uh, there is no politics behind it. And that's what you—that's what you see when you uh, when you look at the Nahda. Just w- let me give you a, f- a numbers. Numbers. You know how much I know how much Americans like love numbers, whether it's in baseball or in basketball or whatever. <laughs> uh, in 2011, when Nahda uh, the, the first elections, they won out of about uh, I, I believe they had one and a half million people who voted for them. Okay, that was 2011. In the elections of 2014, that number went down to 800,000 or 900,000. In the elections of 2019, it went down to 450,000. So basically, in 10 years, they lost two-thirds of the electorate. And numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. So you're always going to have the uh, your average pundit in Washington. You're always going to have your average 
Tunisian in ex- expert in exile uh, who is uh, being paid for an agenda, uh, usually for an agenda, pushing and calling for uh, for a, uh, sanctions against his own country. But people here don't care. It's going. The democracy is being built. It's being built by Tunisian on the ground, and uh, the new cycles are going to go away. And I was the saying, bottom, the bottom line is leave Tunisians alone, and they'll do it. Exactly. Right? Leave them alone. They do it. In a country where, uh, in a country that, uh, in 1956 gave the right to vote to women four months after the independence. In a country where this year, in uh, the university graduates, 60% were women. Uh, in a country that, uh, uh, that just uh, prohibited polygamy a few months after the independence in 1956. Uh, it, in a country where people are educated, just uh, no, you, you, don't worry about it. And we've seen what, what, is, what it is to Im- wanting to impose some form of uh, whatever your own view or your own brand of democracy. We've seen it, as I told you, in Iraq and we've seen it in, uh, in Libya. But guess what, American friends, we've seen it on, the, on January 6th on the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Well, Hisham Ben Khamsa, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you, my friend. And uh, hello to everybody, all our friends in the U.S. That's the voice and the face of uh, Hisham bin Hamsa, um, basically political analyst in Tunisia, a real Tunisian, speaking about what's happening in Tunisia, Jamal, and you're getting it directly from what's happening on the ground right now. And we, this is not anything that we're hearing in the mainstream media, obviously. It was really quite an extraordinary interview. Yes, and uh, of course, Hisham talks about, I mean, the big thing that you keep hearing about is pe- people want, who want to act that they know what's going on. Right. They keep saying, is uh, the President Kai Saeed, is, is Egypt CC, is this a revolution, is this that? I mean, they don't know the intricacies and the nuances that's going on. Right. And just to update our uh, viewers and listeners, you know, President Kai uh, Saeed, uh, just on Wednesday added uh, uh, Tunisia's ambassador to the United States to a rash of dismissals, uh, but uh, he has uh, yet to say who he will be replacing uh, the prime minister with after he fired him uh, last uh, in about two weeks ago. There are a lot of things that people don't talk about. For example, just that uh, local polls, and this is new, say that there is a lot of support for Saeed's controversial actions, which uh, importantly, including freezing Tunisia's parliament. I mean, that's the big action due to mishandling, really. Really, it's due to mishandling of COVID, because you mentioned COVID, corruption, and of course, uh, the economy, Tunisia is coping with economic, social, and health crises. Right. Uh, with the coronavirus uh, pandemic or overwhelming its hospitals. In my conversation with Hisham, and he said uh, he's less worried about what's going on politically, in a way, of course, he's very concerned. And he said, I just came back where he lives by just uh, outside uh, Tunis uh, in a resort town, just like right on the water. And when I've uh, known Hisham before, he was in La Marsa, which is also another uh, resort town. And he said he saw people, thousands and thousands on the beach. 
like nothing is happening. He said he was mostly worried about the spread of the coronavirus. I mean, well, this scared him more but, than the political situation. But there. honestly, Jamal, to be honest, I mean, Hisham's point is well taken. I mean, people are up in arms about the political situation in Tunisia. The real crisis that's going to hit Tunisians is their exceedingly low vac vaccination rate, which some people have estimated at being less than 10%. Um, most of Africa is below, well below 10%. And if you look at the Delta variant uh, and its extreme transmissibility, you look at the Delta Plus variant, you look at Lambda and Epsilon variants, which are starting to come out now, I would say the earthquake politically in Tunisia is going to pale in comparison to the health crisis that's going to be confronting Tunisians, and not just Tunisians, but North Africans and Africans and South Africans, you know, and here too, obviously, but Africa is going to be especially vulnerable. So I think Hisham's point is very well taken. Yeah, and the government uh, of the um, former prime minister is responsible to that's for right. what happened. They pretty much sat on their hands and and did nothing. I mean, Tunisia just went from almost zero cases to hundreds of thousands. Right. And they thought they can somehow avoid it being a small country and controlling the borders or something like this. And then it just like spread uh, like crazy. Uh, one last point on this on this topic, since we talked about it last week and with Hisham's interview, uh, I just want to put to rest this whole comparison between Tunisia and Egypt, between Saeed and, and Sisi. Let's just remind everyone that Saeed, because I was looking at the poll results, etc., was elected with more than seventy percent of the vote. Okay. And the and and the and the army has not played any major role yeah, in that's Tunisian a big difference. politics. CC won talked about it. CC won by ninety nine percent, and so yeah, which is typical of despots and uh, you know autocrats and things like that, which is what CC and the Egyptian military regime is all about. The only thing that... So he came to, pop, to power by popular support, yeah, exactly. not by exactly. the army support in Egypt, no, that's which is right. basically the bedrock of the state for nearly seven years. Right. And then the other thing is to point to is that the strong trade union movement and right. civil society that Tunisia has. Much stronger than Egypt. And that's what I witnessed when yeah. I was there. And uh, during the so-called uh, Arab Spring and the Tunisian Revolution, it's the driving force were the youth, the students, the trade unions, and civil society. And uh, Hisham said it will be the same thing. If Saeed does not... Right. Uh, do right by the people, they'll be back on the streets well, demanding change. Let's let's hope so, and let's hope that my my idea last week proves to be incorrect, that there aren't a lot of external forces acting on Tunisia right now, and I have more confidence in the people of Tunisia that uh, if, if, if he doesn't deliver, uh, he's out. But I'm, as I said, I'm more worried about the COVID epidemic. Jamal, we need to go to Palestine because there's there's a lot of news that we need to cover. And I know you've been covering it very, very carefully. And that's the Israeli Supreme Court, the postponement of the Israeli Supreme Court decision on the 
illegal uh, forced removal of Palestinians from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah. Um, we've been talking about this for months and months. We've been talking about the ethnic cleansing in Palestine forever, obviously, but this is just yet another uh, painful kind of expression of the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in and around Jerusalem. Can you give our listeners kind of an update on what's happening? And I say so-called Israeli Supreme Court because they're supposed to be independent from political maneuvering, but uh, nobody believes that the Israeli Supreme Court somehow gets a pass from the political uh, uh, craziness that's going on there right now. Let me just give you a hint about the Israeli High Court or the Supreme Court. They refer to it as the High Court. One of the judges lives on an illegal settlement in the West Bank. Well, just to give you, well, that, this is that just to give you. That says it all. That says <laughs> it all. One of, you know, he lives on stolen Palestinian land in, in the West Bank. Well, that says it all. So we've been talking about this topic for the past couple of weeks. We've had uh, Diana Buto. We've had other people talk about this whole thing. And this is r really a small sliver of the ethnic cleansing because the case that came in front of the Israeli Supreme Court, which which they postponed, they postponed basically the ruling on the case. It's just about four Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah out of the others. You know, those are the four Palestinian families who were fighting evictions orders for their homes. And, uh, you know, you've witnessed, and I'm sure a lot of people know about this, all the demonstrations, grassroots movements, social media, right. even mainstream media, Israeli right. media covering. So, so they, they pretty much, I'm saying, when I say they, I talk about the judges, including the United States, by the way. Right. Including the United States sending messages, not as harsh as, as we, 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 sh we think they should. The European Union, many countries saying, don't do it. Don't evict these people. So now they've faced a dilemma because we know the direction where it was heading. They were basically just like they've been doing it I don't think, all along. Yeah, I don't think it's a dilemma. I think it's a fake dilemma, Jamal. I mean, we know how the Israeli high court is going to rule. If you look, No, at no, we know that. And that's what I said, the dilemma, whether you said the fake, is that they're just kicking the can down the road. But they're they gonna... just they know all eyes are on right. them. So here is the thing: they offered this ludicrous settlement to the Palestinian families. What they told the Palestinian families: we want you to recognize that these Israeli settlers are your landlords. Oh my God! And start paying rent on homes they lived in since the fifties, uh, Jess. Those people actually who live there, I mean, the story people don't know realize that there might be some argument that some Jewish families own the land, you know, which is very minor land. Remember, pre-1948, right. Jewish families and the Jewish fund owned less than 3% of the land in Palestine. Right. But then when the Jordanian government, the Jordanian government was the one to build these homes in the 50s to house these Palestinian families who lost their homes right. in West Jerusalem and other towns and villages when, uh, where Israel occupied, right? So they've been living there. They built their homes. They've raised their families. And now a settler group came and, and dug some Paperwork said, oh, this land was owned by, by some Jews before 1948. It's our land. They bought the rights and they want to evict them. So the court saying, well, we needed to recognize that 
you are tenants <laughs> and you have to pay rent. And of course they refused. So they refused the settlement. And that's why you see some headlines that Palestinians refuse to compromise or right. some, 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 BS. some ludicrous things. Yeah, some, some yeah, exactly. They don't give you the historical, not to mention the thousands and thousands of Palestinians who lost, who lost their homes during the Nakba in 1948. But Jamal, can I bring it home to you? What about you sending a letter to the illegal Israeli settlers that are occupying your compound in Jerusalem right now? And why don't you send them a demand letter to start paying uh, rent that they owe you for 50 years? I mean, that's how ludicrous this is in terms of the Israeli so-called high court uh, solution to the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah. I mean, what basically they're saying to them, if you if you pay rent, you will be protected tenants. And and absolutely, this is exactly what I've been saying. I said we will also recognize some of the Israelis who are living for free in our homes, meaning Palestinians, since 1948. You can also have a compromise and, and, and consider them as protected tenants if they pay rent and back rent since For 73 years, yeah. So that's why I have no confidence in the Israeli high court. You're right, they will kick the can down the road. But when push comes to shove, Jamal, the Israeli high court there is not in the interest of uh, Palestinians. It's not in the interest of Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship. They will rule against all Palestinians and they will continue to, you know, commit themselves as a so-called high court uh, to the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. I think the fact that the world community has come down, even the United States to some extent, you know, to say, don't do this, it's not going to stop them. I have no confidence. No, no, as I said, they're kicking the can down the road. Right. They're waiting for the right opportunity when, uh, you know, well, we know the, the right opportunity. Distracted. Yeah, it's a distraction. Exactly. It'll be a distraction. Well, they're waiting for the right distraction right. also, you know, because now if you look at the Israeli media and if you look at the statements made by the Israeli prime minister and the defense minister, you know, guess what? They're beating the drums to go into war with, with Iran, Iran you know, right. against Iran. For that tanker. So, so, yeah. so, so what, something happens on that front, and everybody will be focusing on that, because that's a decision by the court. And decision by the court, if it lands in favor of the settlers, the Israeli army comes in the middle of the night at 4 o'clock in the morning and toss the Palestinian families out on the street. They've done that time and time again. Yeah, and we will have social media uh, depictions of that, representations of that, video, audio of that. Will be They won't be able to hide it as well as they did, you know, after the Nekba and after the Nexa. So, you know... I, I think the world community needs to be prepared that this decision is coming down the pike. And the real question, Jamal, for me is, will, you know, we're seeing these small steps as we continue to talk about this week after week of the world community holding the apartheid regime of Israel more and more accountable as time goes on. This will be yet another uh, opportunity for the world community to call out this apartheid regime and you know, the Israeli so-called high court will not be able to, as it has in the past, identify itself as somehow outside the political dynamics of this apartheid regime. So people need to be it's ready. It's not outside of it. It's never been. It's, it serves uh, it. It's a legal system for two, two ethnic, ethnicities. Exactly. Palestinians are treated differently. Everyone knows that. 
I have not seen a single Israeli being evicted, basically, to well, allow a Palestinian yeah, family to move well, to Jamal, a, a, a rightful owners yeah, of a property I, I, to move I, back you, into their home. Exactly. And I'm just thinking about the compound that your family has, the most beautiful buildings and compounds that your family has in Jerusalem, you know, that were illegally stolen, uh, have been occupied for so many decades now. If the back rent were paid to you and your family that was due, that's millions and millions and millions of dollars. I don't see the Israeli high court calling those uh, so-called tenants uh, on stolen land. Let's, let's be real about it. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We're going to move to the next Yeah, topic, Jamal, yes. I, I want to ask you about this, man. Isn't it wonderful that in Canada, as a Canadian citizen, that you can use Canadian tax dollars to support the Israeli military? Isn't that, and get a tax deduction for it. I, I think, boy, the Canadians really have figured it out you know, let's see if we could support a military of a foreign entity of a foreign country and get tax deductions from it. This is among all the outrageous things. This has well, to be one we of have, the top. We have, we have something similar here. If yeah. you recall, we've done several, um, you know, interviews about the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco right. and the Helen Diller Foundation and other organizations who were funding Canary Mission, a dubious website created to smear Palestinian-American students and academics, and giving tax deduction to, to their donors. This was all exposed in 2018, Jess. Remember 2018? Oh, absolutely. By articles in the Forward and Haaretz, and then there was also the Al Jazeera investigation uh, in their documentary, The Lobby, which linked uh, Adam Milstein uh, to be behind the Canary Mission. By the way, I should say the felon, Adam Milstein, because he was a felon. He was arrested for tax evasion in this country. But they set up these shells of organization, nonprofits, with a mission saying, you know, you got to feed the hungry, cultural, what, what, what have you. And then they end up funding Canary Mission. They end up funding the Israeli Defense Forces. So in Canada, a request by the, uh, the Canadian uh, to revoke, basically, a request was um, now submitted to revoke the Canadian Zionist Cultural Association. Remember... This is a cultural association. Yeah. See, that's that's the that's the veneer. But that's the culture. Uh, to revoke Military, their tax status, Militarism basically. is the culture. <laughs> yeah. And and basically for their complicity in Palestinian disposition and funding the Israeli military. They are registered uh, they are registered in Canada as a, as a Canadian charity and they have been providing significant support to the Israeli occupation army. And they have been drawing attention to the massive taxpayer subsidy. Basically, that's what, you know. Right. So, the, so basically, um, uh, last week, just and this is interesting because this is, was initiated by a Palestinian and a Jewish rabbi. Right. So a Palestinian-Canadian who originally was a refugee, Khaled uh, Muammar, his name, and Rabbi David 
Mouvasser submitted a former legal complaint to the Canada Revenue Agency, equivalent to the, our own IRS, right, concerning the charitable status of the Canadian Zionist Cultural Association. The complaint asks the, uh, the CRA, that's their IRS, to investigate whether the Zionist organization operations comply with its re uh, regulations for registered charities and if not, revoke the group charitable status. These guys have funded so far, uh, just in 2019, $1.7 million. Unbelievable. To a settler organization. Well. And then on, on, on their ask, they said the aim is raising funds for IDF soldiers. On their ask, and then they bragged they had a link uh, in the IDF, Israeli so-called Israeli Defense Forces, a link to them thanking them. Of course, since this article, this, by the way, I'm referencing an article by Mondo Weiss and other uh, uh, publications. Since the news came out, the Israeli so-called defense forces removed the link to this organization. It's you too know, late. Because, it's too yeah, late. It's too late. They, 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 they removed it. They also support like I said, settler uh, uh, settlements, illegal settlements in in the in the West Bank. Uh, they uh, people who donate to them receive basically uh, tax deductions. So, so what will happen, Jamal? Do you have a guess? I I, you know, Canada is the Canadian government. I should say not the people of Canada, but the Canadian government, even under. Uh, Trudeau have been staunchly pro-Zionist. I mean, let's let's not kid ourselves. Trudeau thinks that he's somehow a progressive, not when it comes to Palestine, uh, full stop. So it'll be curious to see whether or not the Canadian Revenue uh, Service, the Canadian version of the IRS, will do anything about this. It's blatant, Jamal, this is blatant in your face. We're going to use tax-deductible money to support illegal uh, settler colonialists and a military of another country, Jamal. Can you freaking believe? Well, actually, the Canadian law prohibits supporting a military of another yeah, country. Yeah, I know that's the law, Jamal, but they've been getting away with this for decades. So we'll see what happens, right? Well, definitely. I mean, this is that's why the complaint uh, has just been filed. So we're going to see the response. Of course, I've read like some articles by different people there who support this organization saying, oh, Israel is being singled out. That's the, always the, what, the claim. What, what, what other, Israel is being singled what out. What other uh, nonprofit in Canada is supporting the military of another country? Full stop. I, I, I don't know, but I mean, you and I are not experts on Canadian politics, no. but this kind of like kind of jumped out at me when I saw that because... We've experienced similar things here. Yes. Now, on the private level, like we know Hollywood stars, you know that, like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, Stallone, they are one, some of the group of, of the stars in Hollywood that every year go and donate money to support the Israeli so-called defense forces. You know about that. Oh, yeah. But that's... But that's a private, that's kind of a private fundraiser. They're not offering tax deduction. Tax deduction. Yeah, they're so, just so privately. That's the, that's yeah. the difference. Because the I, I think our listeners and viewers know this, Jamal. The United States has this thing called the uh, IDF Foundation. So the Israeli Defense Force uh, 
Foundation is a foundation that is in the United States, a 501c3 that raises money all the time. But when Schwarzenegger and Stallone do it, it's unclear whether or not, I mean, whether or not they're getting their tax deductions for that, but might be worth reinvest, reinvestigating that because there is a, oh, you know what they call it? I'm sorry. It's called Friends of the IDF in the United States. Mm. Friends of the IDF. That's the name well, of the- Well, apparently in the US, uh, it hasn't raised, um, you know, a red uh, flag. Okay. But in Canada, it did. Okay. Well, we'll be following that story, but we can't leave the show today, Jamal, without talking about our favorite Islamophobe, Laura Loomer. I call her Laura Looney. She She's crossed paths with us many times. She's this really um, outrageously racist, Islamophobic, right-wing, Trump-loving, uh, you know, ethnic-cleansing-loving extremist who has been ordered uh, to pay the legal fees in a crazy lawsuit that was brought uh, against care. It's really a small piece of uh, karma and justice, Jamal, that uh, kind of stands out in the sea of all the, you know, uh, injustices that occur. And of course, CARE is the Council on American Islamic Relations. So she sued CARE and she, in her lawsuit, and sued, by the way, uh, Twitter, and Twitter, both, both those lawsuits were uh, thrown out, saying that Care conspired with Twitter to ban her from Twitter. Right. And, uh, you know, drag this case, making them spend a lot of money. And so, of course, the judge tossed the case out and then ordered her to pay $125,000 to care in attorney fees. I love it. I and, love it. And the whole thing was just in part, the whole lawsuit was was filed to harass care. It was frivolous. And... and and to defeat its mission of protecting the civil rights of uh, American Muslims. And for people who don't know don't know much about her, but she is like a conspiracy theorist. She's an Islamophobe, anti-Muslim. She describes herself as an anti-Muslim political activist. Um, uh, by the way, uh, she in 2020, she was the Republican just nominee. That's right. To represent Florida's 21st congressional district. Uh, and she lost to the Democrat uh, uh, Lois Frankel. Yeah, but not by people much. People remember that. Yeah, not by much. And, and she also uh, writes for a project Veritas, right? Which everyone knows if you if anyone knows anything about journalism. Uh, you know, so Project Veritas is a right wing group known for. By the way, Fox News always quotes Project Veritas. They're, uh, they're known for producing secretly recorded and deceptively edited right. uh, undercover audio. They edit the audio and the video uh, supposedly for their investigations for uh, not just uh, Muslims, Arabs, but also left-leaning groups. Uh, I think you, your description was the best one. She's a loony. She's, listen... I've seen her in person. She's been in and out of the Bay Area over the last decade. She's absolutely out of her mind. She's a Trump-loving, MAGA-wearing, MAGA-loving Islamophobe who basically has created havoc. And, uh, you know, 
maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit of justice when she writes that check for $125,000. I don't know what the legal fees were at Twitter, but she's got a, lo- a lot of money to uh, to pay up. And, uh, you know, you know, Jamal, I, I don't want to end on too, too uh, uh, sour a note, but uh, we'll, maybe we'll talk about this next week. But I think our listeners and viewers have to be very cautious now about the Delta variant, the Delta Plus variant, the other variants, Lambda and Epsilon that we're finding now. I hate to say this and I hate to predict it, but we may be facing not just a fourth uh, wave and surge of COVID in this country and the world, but we might be headed for, you know, lockdown light. So, you know, stay tuned. Well, I mean, the most important thing that we've been uh, saying all along, wear your mask when you're out. If you have not been vaccinated, get get your vaccine. Get vaccinated, please. If, if you well, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download our latest shows. Talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.